Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, April 27th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, medical students in Mississippi remember those who have donated their bodies to the study of science. While gambling options in Mississippi have expanded, services for those with an addiction have been subject to severe cuts. Plus, dispelling myths and understanding life with autism. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Students, staff, and families gathered at the cemetery outside of the University of Mississippi Medical Center yesterday to remember those who have donated their bodies to science. The event was hosted by students to honor donors and their families for contributions to medical education. Dr. Norma Ojeda is the department chair for advanced biomedical science, or rather education, at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Speaking with our Lacey Alexander, she says donated bodies play a vital role in training the next generation of doctors. Remembering is important to keep these heroes immortal. We have to remember them because what they are doing is so selflessness. This is so important for science and for education that we we must remember them. In your studies, do you have an experience with a donated body that you can recall for us? Well, there are several, but I would say that a very important one is that when we were working on the body, we found some device inside the body. That device was a stent. Uh, that stent is something that helps the blood flow easily towards an artery that is getting uh, smaller and smaller. So when this stent was found, we thought, oh, okay, this person was a person that was taking care of their health, obviously, and now is teaching us how the stent is still persisting after death, and we can show the students the stent as well. You usually don't see the stand after you place it in a patient, but there was an amazing opportunity to show the students that the stand, how the stand looked like and where the stand usually stayed. Because when you put those in a living individual, you don't see it open wide. You just put through the, the, the skin. But it was a, a very interesting experience for the students. 
Speaking of students, this program was very student-heavy. They were the ones that read the names. They were the ones that listed their experiences. Tell me in your own words why it was important to have the students deliver so many words today. Because they really wanted. They are the ones asking for the opportunity to thank these donors. These donors are anonymous individuals for them during the whole year. And this is the time for them to have some kind of closure as well, because we insist very heavily during the program to see these donors as human beings, as people that have passed, that have people who love them, that they love people. So they got kind of attached in an emotional way for them. And this type of ceremony are like a closure for them and for them also to give things for this individual. Dr. Norma Ojeda says her students at the medical center wanted to honor not just the ones who donated their bodies, but also the families who attended the ceremony on Wednesday. Among the families is Margaret Wodetsky. Her husband, Richard Johnson, donated his body, which she says was an extension of his outlook toward life and education. They talked here about how the person who donated was a teacher because of what the students are learning. He was a teacher for 48 years. He taught many medical students, but he talked mostly, he taught mostly about humanity, about being a good person, making the world a better place. And I think that's why he felt that donating his body would help him continue doing that, which he had done during his lifetime. And Miss Margaret, do you agree with that? Do you agree that he made the world a better place? Oh, definitely. And I'm sure he's still continuing to do it. So how are you feeling after this ceremony? Are you are you happy to hear his memory? Are you a little sad, a little emotional? Tell me what you're feeling right now. Well, sadness and happiness both. I miss him very much. Uh, but it's, it's wonderful to have him honored and recognized for what he's what he did in his lifetime. Margaret Wodeski says she misses her husband but appreciates the respect the students have for his contribution and legacy. Among the medical students in attendance is Kayla Pavlik. When her grandfather died, she says his body was donated to science as well. In order to give thanks and just to express the, the gratitude for this incredible gift that these people give us as students and for our future patients and for me as a clinical anatomy student, for my future students, it's how we can express our gratitude to those who made this decision and supported their loved one to make that decision in a time where it was not easy. And, and speaking as somebody whose family member did donate, it's, it's a very difficult time and it is a difficult decision to make. So being able to uh, be with these loved ones here today, it's, it's, um, it just fills my heart. Talk to me about your grandfather that you said donated. Where did he donate and why was it important for him to do that? He, um, he donated to the University of North Texas Health Center, actually. Um, and he grew up working very blue-collar jobs. He was a carpenter. He was a mechanic. Um, he actually put in some of the window panes of the, uh, the World Trade Center. He didn't know anything about what I was doing. You know, he, he knew I was in school and he knew that I was doing well. When he was towards the end of his life, um, he started asking, you know, more and more, trying to understand more about what I was doing and, and just hearing how the donors I had worked with prior to that impacted me. He made the decision on his own to, to donate 
to honor both me and our future students, future physicians, and their future patients. Um, Talk to me about UMMC a little bit and why Mississippi specifically needs programs like this. One, it's an incredible opportunity just from a humanism and, and ethical standpoint. Rarely do people get to confront the feelings that come up when you get to work with these incredible donors. Um, And for healthcare professionals, that entire skill set is something they need to be able to have. Um, Not every patient or patient case is roses and unicorns, right? You know, and so being able to work through these emotions um, is, is an opportunity only that they could get with these donors. In Mississippi especially, we have a lot of underserved populations, healthcare-wise, and so being able to work with these donors, we get to see, you know, what some of those long-term chronic conditions can do to the body that an x-ray or an MRI just doesn't express. Kayla Pavlik is a clinical anatomy PhD student at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and is honoring those who have donated their bodies to science. Coming up, while gambling options in Mississippi have expanded, services for those with an addiction have suffered severe cuts. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. What can you do with the MPB Radio app? Listen live, hear local news, view the schedule, make a contribution, listen to shows on demand, and interact with social media. Get the app for your smartphone now. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. It's been nearly five years since Mississippi implemented sports betting, and state revenue has grown tremendously with the lottery. But funds that are intended to help treat gambling addiction have decreased drastically since 2017. Now, a hotline is the only service offered by the Mississippi Council on Compulsive Gambling. Prior to budget cuts by the state legislature, Executive Director Betty Greer tells our Michael McEwen they were able to collect data and offer counseling to gambling addicts. There's more availability of gambling now. You know, initially in 96, there were probably maybe only a couple of riverboats, you know, in the vicinity. And now I think there are 26. And, of course, the lottery now is available in Mississippi, as well as uh, sports betting um, on, on property at the casinos. So the availability in our state has increased from that period in time until now. Have there been any trends in sports betting in Mississippi specifically since they opened in, uh, I believe it was August of 2018? We haven't seen anything. We, we really don't have any anything statistically to base anything on. The only thing that we have is just our helpline stats, and we haven't seen any any spike in those, uh, like when there's March Madness or, you know, the Super Bowl, you know, whatever month that would fall in. Uh, we don't see that reflected in people 
that are who are calling our helpline. Again, I have nothing statistical to base that on because we have not done any um, studies. We don't have the funding to do that. And what are the specific health effects when talking about uh, gambling addiction? The health effects would be, of course, mental. Gamblers have a very high suicide rate. Compulsive gamblers do. Uh, And the hopelessness that people feel when they uh, can't quit gambling and want to quit gambling. And it takes a long time for, a, a lot of times it takes a long time for a gambler to admit that they have a problem and seek help. And usually when that happens, they have just wrecked their finances for their family and any friends that have also have lent them money in the interim. Sometimes you'll see gamblers who uh, have been put in jail for theft to fund their gambling habits. So it's like any other addiction, drug addiction or alcohol addiction. It, it wrecks havoc not only on the individual but on all family members. Do you think that in Mississippi collectively that there's enough of an understanding over the, the dangers of gambling, if you could say? I do not know. I you know, tried. We've done our part here to try to educate uh, the legislators when they were bringing in the, when they were going to vote on legalizing the lottery. We prepared a paper and spoke to the subcommittee on that. Um, so again, you know, any time that we have an opportunity to uh, talk about problem gambling and to talk about what we do and the importance of it, we certainly do that. Could you talk a little bit about the relationship between the state legislature and your organization? We're a nonprofit. I mean, if we did any lobbying or hired somebody to lobby, we, that has to be registered, and of course we don't have any money for that. So any in the, the limited times that we have interacted with the legislature, it's been, again, strictly in a... Um, educating them on what we do and the, you know, problems with gambling addiction. And one thing I will say as well, uh, the council and any council that's affiliated with the National Council is gaming neutral. In other words, we don't take a position uh, for or against uh, legalized gambling. We are strictly here to, you know, be here for the people who have a gambling problem. So you've talked a little bit about because of your funding, uh, the inability to conduct statistical research. How important would you consider that statistical foundation in the work that your organization does? Well, I mean, again, even if you, you know, even if you do the study and you have, you have the data there, I mean, really, once you have it, you know, what are you going to do with it? You know what I'm saying? I don't mean that to minimize the importance of it, but it's a point in time that will show you the severity of the problem. And again, when that was done back in the in 2000, 2001, point in time, and there was a lot of interest. It was it was presented, I believe, in Congress, and then people moved on from there. So, to me, the thing that's really important is that, you know, again, at least we have a helpline where we have counselors that are master degree people who are certified problem gambling counselors that. Even though it's not in person, they can provide help over the phone, and they can send information to the people that are calling, whether it's family members or the gamblers themselves. And they can refer them to services that are available in our state. 
to me, that's that's really important, too. Betty Greer is executive director of the Mississippi Council on Compulsive Gambling. Coming up, dispelling myths and understanding life with autism. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. April is National Autism Awareness Month. According to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the prevalence of autism spectrum disorder, or ASD, in Mississippi is 1 in 59 children. That's slightly higher than the national average. Garrett Yeager is director of ADA services at the Autism Center of North Mississippi. In part one of his conversation with our Michael Guidry, he discusses the role of awareness in how to catch the early signs of autism spectrum disorder. One of the things that's really been uh, important in the last five years or so has been to sort of introduce this month as both awareness and acceptance month. Um, And I think that the acceptance part is really important as well. I, I also still believe the awareness portion is really well, especially in a state like Mississippi, where our average diagnosis age is still five or six years old, which is, you know, that's much too late. We would like to be identifying a lot before then. Um, but acceptance is also extremely important as well. And, and learning to to um, to be more accommodating to uh, those of us who um, are not neurotypical and, and, you know, figuring out ways that we can have events and um, things like that that are, are more accepting and, and you know more open to um, individuals with autism. You just mentioned that you know, part of the uh, awareness is, is being able to diagnose um, before the ages of five or six. So for young parents, uh, for, for anyone that ha- has a child that is kind of in that developmental stage where social and communicative school skills are starting to develop what are what are some of the things that they should be looking for or what are some of the things that they should consider if they are worried that some type of intervention uh, might be necessary uh, to, to provide those accommodations sure yeah so um some of the big things to look out for i would say are i mean really just kind of universally any developmental delays but specifically um, you want to be, you know, very careful about speech delays. Um, things like if your if your child is not making eye contact, um, if they're not socially engaging with you, if they're just sort of around you but not necessarily with you, you know, um, that could be something that that you, you want to watch out for pretty closely as well. Another thing that's pretty common to look out for, and is, you know, when we do get an early diagnosis, and I, I am able to work with a child who's really young, typically that diagnosis comes from parents who notice. You know, what we would call stereotypical or, or repetitive behaviors, um, things like hand flapping or, um, you know, those sort of types, you know, rocking in a chair, those type of behaviors tend to be, um, you know, something that people become concerned about and they'll seek out um, an evaluation or a diagnosis. Um, in this state, you know, one of the things that's challenging is that we do have a, a shortage in those services in the state and in the diagnostic services. And uh, it can be very discouraging. There can be a, a long wait list to, to get that diagnosis. And one thing I would really encourage parents um, to do is if you are concerned, you know, if there is a developmental delay, if there's a speech delay, 
and you are concerned, but you know you hear about those long wait lists, or it's going to be you know six months until you can get a diagnosis. Is to to really try to, to be focused and try to push through that. And, and I know that that's really challenging. And I'm hoping that in the future, Mississippi will have more of those services available. Uh, but it's still very important to have your child evaluated and um, you know to 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 seek out that medical professional help. Um, you know, regardless of how difficult it may be to currently get in our state, um, because early early identification can be such a big difference um, in what the treatment outcomes look like. So I would definitely encourage parents to, to, to stay vigilant on, on getting that kind of help. In that vein, um, how do treatment outcomes vary um, depending on early diagnoses and early interventions? The layman is, is kind of familiar with this um, the idea of the spectrum, like what is the spectrum and how does that relate to outcomes and services? Sure. So, you know, when we say there's a spectrum, um, a lot of that language comes from, you know, older language that we used to use where, um, you know, we people used to say things like high functioning or low functioning. And we don't use those terms anymore and don't think that they're appropriate. There really is no such, such thing as um, <clears throat> high functioning or low functioning, there's going to be, you know, areas of challenge, you know, and every kid's going to have certain areas of challenge and they're going to excel in other areas. Um, and it's not really, it's, it, there's not a good way to define that high or low that way. And, and, and you know, that's one of the reasons why a much better descriptor is, is that things happen on the spectrum. <clears throat> one kid may have a, a challenge in one area, but be, they may be excelling in another area while a different kid may be, um, you know, they may be excelling in the same area that the other child had a challenge in. And so there's a spectrum of different, um, you know, skills that are that we're going to look at, and some are going to excel in some, and some are going to have challenges in those same ones. And um, you know, it, it really just depends on the child and, and what their challenges are. But in terms of the identifying early, there's huge, huge uh, differences in outcomes um, in terms of, of treatment for especially things like social skills or the development of language. Um, if I can get a child in <clears throat> when they're you know, two or three years old, and we can start looking at language development and socially communicating and having functional language they can use, um, outcomes look spectacular for the most part. Um, a child who comes in much later, you know, six or seven years old, <clears throat> that's a lot more challenging. You know, they already have six or seven years under their belt without communicating verbally, and it can be a lot more difficult to, to achieve that goal. Um, while getting them in at two or three, you know, we, we see a lot more uh, we, have, we see a lot more kids who end up verbally uh, communicating uh, when we get them in early like that. So that's one of the biggest differences in um, those outcomes. But we also do have, you know, some of our, our, our children do have some challenging behaviors. Some of that can stem from um, not being able to communicate the way they want to. You know, they look around and they see their peers, uh, their siblings um, communicating in a way that they, they find very challenging. <clears throat> and that can be very frustrating. <clears throat> and so we do see... Um, some of our children who may engage in, in some behaviors that, you know, we would like for them not to. And if we start to see those sort of things, the earlier we can start working on those things, the better. Um, and so some treatment outcomes that can make a big difference would definitely be in um, that, that disruptive behavior and then also in the development of, of verbal language. It can be a big difference if we get them in at two versus if we get them at, you know, five, six, or seven. <clears throat> and again, that's one of the main reasons why that average age of diagnosis in this state of being five or six, which is, you know, it's that way because a lot of our parents don't don't know much is wrong until 
they get to school, right? And then they, they're like, oh, I just thought it was, you know, he was shy. <clears throat> it's like, well, he probably is shy, you know, but um, he might also have autism. So let's see if we can help him in ways to navigate his environments and be able to express himself in the best way that he can and um, be able to achieve the life that he wants to have, you know, and um, being able to do that earlier on is really the key to, uh, to the success of that. And being able to get them in early is, is, is crucial. Garrett Yeager is director of ADA services at the Autism Center of North Mississippi. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.